You're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. I am happy to introduce you to Kimberly Coburn. She's speaking to us via Zoom from Atlanta. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Hazel. So Kimberly and I agree that there is a great unraveling going on. It's a great turning, that there is an ending of the world. I'm going to ask Kimberly to talk about how what she does has relevance and in fact, reflects a lot of these ideas about the world as we know it changing radically. Kimberly, start by talking about the Homestead Atlanta. That'll give people a pretty good idea of where you're coming from. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. When I was in my early 20s, I've had a bit of a rude awakening. I was not raised particularly radically and thought, Things mostly worked the way that they should until I got interested in the food system. And that was my first peek behind the door to see that things were were not the way they had been presented to me. And I saw how broken the food system was and then started a small volunteer group called Crop Mob. We all went and volunteered time on organic farms, but I was not content to labor in delusion anymore. So I started kicking all the doors open and seeing that so very many things were broken. And it led me into a, a bit of a downward spiral and I was a bit bummed out. And that is when I found Dark Mountain and found a great deal of solace in the honesty that it was presenting. And I wanted to live a bit more authentic. I've always been a city girl, born and raised in Atlanta. I have also always loved crafting and using my hands. And I wanted to have more access to traditional skills, ways of interacting with the environment a little bit more meaningfully. And there were folk schools around me. There's a very famous one up in North Carolina called the John C. Campbell Folk School. But I knew that if I wanted access to that education closer to home, I couldn't be the only one who wanted that. There had to be other people who wanted to learn herbalism and fermentation and blacksmithing and woodworking and things like that in the city. So I began the Homestead Atlanta, and it was an urban folk school. We had workshops in all different self-reliance and sustainability skills. And it was just a way for people to low-key, ways that could work into their weekly schedule, start to learn different crafts. But it also was a way of building community, meeting other like-minded people. And it was a time where climate change conversations were still a little bit on the periphery. So it was also a space for people to start having those conversations in person with people who were exploring those concepts. And so it was very interesting to see those conversations happening as people were learning how to ferment or how to make herbal tinctures. That ran for seven years and then COVID happened and we tried briefly to do some online education, but it just wasn't the same. And so I closed up shop on the homestead and have turned to writing ever since then to try and explore the same concepts, but through the written word in an effort to have those conversations on a larger scale. Which is what we're doing. Exactly. When you were talking about the crafts, why was there in, in a digital, maybe I'm answering my own question, in a world where everything is going virtual, why was there an emphasis and appetite for these crafts? Yeah, that's a great question. With the world becoming an increasingly digital and technological space, the experience of working with your hands has become something people really have a deep hunger for. It was almost 
like the more visceral the craft was, the more people tended to be, most of their day job was in the tech world. So a lot of our blacksmithing students spent their days behind computers and just could not wait to smack metal with a hammer. <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. So much of what we do now, the end result is not tangible. It just floats off into the ether and it's a series of ones and zeros or emails or whatever. And so to spend your time and effort on something that you can then hold in your hands or give as a gift is a whole different experience. And I think one that we as human creatures who have relied on creating things for our survival forever until a handful of generations ago, find a really deep satisfaction in that. So I think that that was a big part of the draw. Yeah, I'm thinking about this banging the metal with a mm -hmm. hammer. Blacksmithing. What do blacksmiths even do these days? <laughs> uh, if they would like to make a living, a lot of times decorative railings and stairways. Oh, I see. And gates. I see. And gates. But it is a, still a tremendous, tremendous skill. And one a lot of people connect with very viscerally. Fire and moving metal, it's a very elemental experience. How does that, for instance, compare to, say, glass blowing, which is also fire and moving things around? Right. Yeah. You know, I personally don't have the wealth of experience to really dive into that. Part of what, I, what I'm carrying forward, I'm hoping to write a book of essays about different crafts where I can really dive uh, in to what those experiences uh, are like. Okay. I'd like to read that book because just give some more examples of some of the crafts other than blacksmithing, which seems to be like a very extreme version. It is. <laughs> blacksmithing and glassblowing and woodworking. But we also have a lot of fiber arts. We taught embroidery, knitting, weaving, natural dyeing, and then a lot of things that were more involved with the ecosystem around you, such as foraging, both mushrooms and plants, herbalism, beekeeping, fermentation. So here in the States, we have a, a pretty distinct split. When we talk about crafts, we tend to mean studio crafts, material crafts, things like glass blowing, woodworking, uh, ceramics, things where there is a material involved. But I am a big advocate for reintroducing to the, the concept of craft, what I refer to as living craft, which is working with living systems, whether that's bacteria with fermentation or a colony of bees, that's a really, essential experience of craft and it is a bit of an artificial separation that we uh -huh. created in the face of the industrial revolution i understand but there's some important wisdom to reunifying those things so i mean is farming in general is a craft or uh, am i going too far with that no no no. i would absolutely say so growing anything is its own challenge and a craft because you, you have to learn a new language you have to learn the language of soil and plants that being said, I think that there are elevated forms of that craft, no-till or organic or permaculture, where you have to get incredibly well-versed to do it well. But to call them craft is just a little bit counterintuitive. People listening are going to say, well, in that case, everything is a craft. If there's a part of craft where it goes to skill, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. You know, that's one of those things where I, I sit with the vocabulary that we use a lot and try to parse out why we say one thing is a craft and mm. one thing is not. There's a fantastic book by Alexander Langlands called Craft, uh, C-R-A-F-T, 
A-E-F-T with the, I don't know what the term is for when the A and the E are smushed together. Diphthong, I think. Uh And it really explores traditional crafts all the way from the beginning and the word craft. Initially, craft absolutely covered the things that we now call skills. Mm -hmm. So I tend to gravitate a little bit more towards that original, older approach to that. And there is something Americanized about our splitting of skills and what are considered rarefied artistic crafts that deserve to be covered in magazines versus things that are learned in trade schools. I think maybe it all boils down to capitalism because Mm -hmm. these are all individual. In a way, these crafts and skills are done by at the individual level Mm -hmm. as opposed to at the institutional level. People working at their crafts in a community is very different from them being employed in a large company producing stuff. So I wanted you to talk a little bit now about what you call the skills amnesia, because what what I took out of that is that all these skills, at a communal level, they are being lost if we don't practice them and learn them. What you call a small, fierce movement building an economy of skill to remedy skills amnesia and reacquaint people the abilities we've always relied on before industrialization came along. Is that what we're doing? Is we're reclaiming, remembering? Personally, I think it's quite critical at the juncture that we are at right now. We as a human animal, up until maybe three generations ago, relied on our capacity to make things to survive. That was a fundamental part of being human as much as eating or shelter was. It is a very recent thing that we've been stripped of the capacity to make things and to look out for ourselves, even if if that's something as simple as knowing how to knit a blanket. That stripping away has happened very quietly and without much fanfare. There's all this conversation about the food movement and what's happened to our food systems, but nobody really discusses what has happened to the fact that we don't really make things anymore. And what does that do to people on a psychological and even spiritual level when that is such a fundamental part of being human? I think that it's really critical, both in terms of living more lightly on the land in a time of extreme peak capitalism, that we are able to make things on our own again. But also it's a mental shift. I find that when people become reacquainted with their capacity to make things, they realize how much they've fallen into being a consumer, it's empowering for people to realize that that doesn't have to be a default setting. You can take control over some of the things, uh, you know, within our current context of the things that you, you could grow your own food, you can preserve your own food, things like that. But it also becomes a bit of an eye-opening exercise for what kind of future can we build knowing that we have had the capacity to create these things. Somewhere in what, what I read, of what you've written, you contrast consumption to creation mm. and problem solving. So by becoming a consumer, other people have made these objects. You buy them as opposed to making them yourself, where you become the creator and you can solve the problem with your own hands. Exactly. So that also then brings... I guess the word embody is being used a lot these days. 
that you're embodying these skills. You're the blacksmith or the glass blower or any of these or the knitter. These are all physical activities, right? We're contrasting that to, to the digital world. Your body is doing this, not just your mind. I mean, I know these things sound very self-evident, but we're saying them. It's not particularly controversial what we're talking about, but it just hasn't been articulated for a lot of people. Mm. And it has lost its place in the cultural conversation a lot. One of the things capitalism did to craft is it reduced it to hobbies. And obviously I have nothing against hobbies. I'm a big proponent of hobbies, but it, the stripping of skills to hobbies made it something that you did on your off hours from your nine to five day job. It, it you know, in the eyes of capitalism, your hobby is a cute thing you do for fun in your own time. It isn't meaningful. Um, and that's neutered the importance of craft to humanity. Though people think relearning these skills can be nostalgic or cute, I actually think it's quite subversive and rebellious to learn these and teach people these things. On the Dark Mountain Forum, where you were talking about fermentation and grief, I dropped a note into the chat box to say I wanted to talk to you. And that's how this conversation originally started. I've heard of fermentation, and it's kind of a weird thing that some people do, <laughs> but I had no idea. Can we talk about fermentation, what it is, and how it fits into this larger context of living among the ruins or living in the turning or in the unraveling? What role can fermentation play? You are a fermenter, right? I am a casual fermenter. I am a dabbler, but I am very fascinated and have looked into it a great deal. Yeah, you talk about all these things bubbling on your counter, which mm -hmm. made you sound more like a witch brewing <laughs> things, you know. So, so do explain all of this. Absolutely. Kimberly Coburn is talking about fermentation and the end of our world as we've known it. This is Tidings and Hazel Kahn on WPKN Radio. Sandor Katz, who is the go-to guy for the fermentation revival, he explains fermentation as the transformational capacity of microbes. The bare bone science of it, fermentation is its own scientific word altogether. The fermentation of food is basically yeasts and bacterias transforming the food that we eat to preserve it, to make it healthier, and makes it less pathogenic. I mean, it actually can make it safer over time. Foods that we're so used to that are fermented are everything from coffee, sauerkraut, kimchi, yogurt, beer, sourdough bread. You probably don't go a day, certainly not a week, without consuming something that is fermented. Most of us every morning with our coffee. There are many different types of fermentation. There are three primary ones when you're learning how to do it. Lactic acid fermentation, which is a process that happens without oxygen, and that's how you do sauerkraut, most of your vegetable ferments, yogurts, sourdough breads. A lot of times there's a brine involved. You're using salt to create an environment that brings in those beneficial bacteria, and they then break down sugars and carbohydrates and create an atmosphere that preserves the food without refrigeration and also fights off any pathogenic bacteria 
and also can make it easier to digest, can really enhance the amount of vitamins and minerals in it, which is great given how depleted our soils have become. Two other kinds, one is everybody's favorite, alcoholic fermentation, which is also done in the absence of air. It is also an anaerobic process. And in that one, yeast breaks down the glucose into alcohol and carbon dioxide. So that's where you get your beers and your wines and your meats. And then one more step, if you put a bottle of wine, when you expose it to the air for too long, that becomes an acetic acid fermentation. So that's how your wine mysteriously turns to vinegar if you do not cork it or over time. So those are the main fermentations used. So vinegar is fermented? It is. The thing about fermentation is I never thought about that. All of it happens without heat. Absolutely. And that's why fermentation has often been seen as a bit magical because it will suddenly start boiling and bubbling in the absence of heat. So that has always been historically something people have revered a bit. But yeah, it, it is the activity of the yeast and bacteria living and moving around and, and uh, emitting carbon dioxide. It doesn't require heat. So that's what we used way before canning, way before refrigeration to keep our vegetables and foods and harvests good for indefinitely, really. Other than sauerkraut, what other vegetables do we eat fermented? All different cultures have all different ferments common to them, you know, the same way sauerkraut is common to German communities and kimchi to Asian communities. You know, everybody made their own version of things. You can do all kinds of different vegetables. Some get a little bit weird. I've made lovely fermented radishes before. Is you make a salted brine. It's that simple. If your tap water is very heavily chlorinated, that can be difficult. You need to either boil it or let it sit out for a little while just to get the chlorine off of it. Clean water, salt. I usually put a little coffee filter on top so that it can breathe a little bit, but doesn't get any fruit flies or anything in it and leave it out for a couple of days and make sure that all of the vegetable material is submerged in the brine so it doesn't get moldy. And then depending on how warm or cold it is over a matter of a couple of days to a couple of weeks, it starts to get kind of tangy and really delicious. And it's got that very specific fermented flavor. And then you can keep it in the fridge indefinitely at that point. If you keep it on the counter, it will just keep fermenting and can get to where it's, you have to have a special palate to enjoy something mm -hmm. that's exceptionally fermented. But in the fridge, it just suspends that microbial activity. What are the advantages of fermentation over preserving through canning? The thing about canning is it's more of a scorched earth approach. When you pan and boil, the pressure and heat get so high, they kill off all yeast and bacteria. And then because it's hermetically sealed at that point, nothing can get in. The slight danger is that there are a handful of bacterium like, like botulism, that sometimes can withstand that if it is not done hot enough or at high enough pressure, and it will proliferate because it has no competition whatsoever. Also, it's not a particularly health-giving. It doesn't benefit your health in any particular way, except that perhaps because we're able to have access to vegetables when you couldn't otherwise, which is good. Fermentation is this ecosystem that is constantly competing and self-regulating. And so there are typically potentially the bacteria that causes botulism in there, but they get out-competed by the probiotic bacteria. And so it's just a non-issue. People get very freaked out by fermentation because it sits out on the counter and they think that it's unsafe, but it's really, for the most part, a very, very safe practice as long as you trust your senses. 
it can go weird and it usually probably wouldn't hurt you, but it would probably smell and taste so messed up that you're not going to eat enough to hurt yourself. And also fermentation offers a ton of health benefits. It makes it more digestible. It increases the vitamin and mineral ability. It breaks down phytic acids. And there is more and more research on the microbiome that shows that the bacteria in our guts actually impacts our mental health, weight loss, all kinds of things. The way you've described it, one could have an almost entirely fermented diet. It's a great question. I, I don't know. Diversity is really important in diets. Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah. know that it would, I don't know, I'm not so sure. That that my understanding of fermentation has increased about 200%. So <laughs> thank you. So now let's get back to Dark Mountain and the world as we know it ending. Where does fermentation fit into that then? You probably covered some of that. Yeah, not knowing how many of the systems we rely on are going to continue mm. for very much longer. You know, I think that fermentation allows us to reduce our food waste, which is a huge problem right now. If you've got cabbage that you're not going to use, instead of just letting it rot or throwing it in the compost, you can preserve it through fermentation. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think in a future where refrigeration might or might not be available, Mm -hmm. fermentation will be absolutely critical. You know, if we don't have the power to do use freezers or refrigerators, we're going to have to rely on technologies that pre-existed those. So fermentation has been relied upon for all of our history to do that. That's part of why I think sharing these skills, knowing these skills is so important because they were what sustained us for eons before this very brief spark of industrialization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So-called progress. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we don't know about supply chains with food moving forward. So I think that people gravitating more towards a hyper-local food system is ideal. And this is, again, a way to extend your seasons, extend your food. It allows you to prepare for long winters. You know, and you can get really creative with fermentation. I mean, Sandor Katz now has, well, I'm sure he has more than three. I have three of Sandor Katz's books, which was Wild Fermentation, the first one that came out, The Art of Fermentation, which is just an absolute Bible of recipes for creative things you can do with fermentation. And over the pandemic, he released a book called Fermentation as Metaphor, which is super, super interesting. Um, And then my friend Julia Skinner also released a book called Our Fermented Lives, which is a little bit more of the history of fermentation and how it has shaped culture and community. And those are all really useful books if you're curious about learning more about the ins and outs of recipes and what fermentation is and what it has done for humanity. Sandra Katz and fermentation as metaphor, and then also just thinking more about that and exploring it in the chapter I wrote about my friend Julia. I mean, fermentation is a really significant metaphor for the position that we find ourselves in right now among the ruins. Sandra Katz refers to it as the rebellious spirit of fermentation because it's an unstoppable natural process. And as we remain aware of the destruction that's happening, it's so easy to think, oh, I'm going to become burnt out, which, you know, fermentation is a fantastic metaphor there because it does not involve fire. And it's this slow, steady, effervescent, irrepressible force. And it's just natural. It just happens. And I think that when we band together and are honest with ourselves about the position that we're in, it isn't 
as doom and gloom as we often think. I mean, the situation is, but our response to it can actually be quite a, there's something empowering about working together and seeing what is ahead of us. If you start fermenting, you will discover at some point that if you do not burp your ferments, give them air to, to breathe, to lit out some of the gases that build up, your jars can shatter. Or when you open a bottle, it will hit the ceiling because it is so effervescent. Really? Um, and that just shows you how strong that power is, even though it seems like it's just steadily bubbling mm. along. That's that kind of force that is capable of. Oh, absolutely. But there are also other ways that fermentation can be seen as a metaphor in the position that we're in right now. Um, I think it's a really wonderful reminder of how inextricably we are connected with the environment around us. The microbiome research is showing that about 43% of our DNA isn't actually human DNA. It's bacteria. And we could not exist as entities without the other living systems within us. We are just becoming aware of that in our anthropocentric world, we're becoming reacquainted with how inextricably connected we are with our environments. And so fermentation is one of those examples where you're, you're feeding the living systems that are existing inside of you with fermentation. Um, also, I think there's something to be said about diversity, because as we were discussing with, with canning, the idea to kill everything and leave it mm -hmm. sterile. But there is something to be said about how the diversity of an ecosystem is directly tied to the health of that ecosystem because it allows it to self-regulate. And as in fermentation, you know, if you give it enough time, it works itself out. In the first couple of days of a ferment, it can smell pretty funky because there's some weird territory battles happening in there between the different bacteria, but mm. it works itself out, fight off the pathogenic bacteria and make it a, a health-giving thing. And it's just in this society where I there are people trying to cordon off power for a very select few. It's really great to see on your kitchen counter diversity at play in a way that's so nourishing. The healthy parts of the biome mm. conquer the pathogenetic parts. Yeah, they outcompete it. That's in the nature of fermentation to do that? Yep. That's how it works. As far as I know, you know, again, not a fermentation scientist. No, but you're a fermenter. Well, I feel safe about it. I trust those little microbes that they've done their work. I don't know why fermentation should bring people together unless they all like fermenting together. I mean... Yeah, it is surprising, though, how tight-knit the fermentation community is. I mean, they really are. I think it's a very communal act, too. You know, I mean, in our first fermentation classes everybody was squeezing cabbage together and there's just time there's just time when you're doing these skills to talk and communicate mm -hmm. and explore so i mean everybody's squeezing cabbage and there's something about when your hands are busy it opens up communication so everybody's squeezing cabbage and talking about themselves and their worlds and what they want the world to look like and then at the end we have this jar of sauerkraut or mm -hmm. soon to be sauerkraut that has everybody's different microbes in it. I mean, obviously we ask them to wash their hands, but it this jar of sauerkraut itself becomes a symbol of community because it is this big microbial mix of all of the people who contributed to it. Which is not true of many of the other crafts that we've been talking about. 
Right. If it you're more solitary, right. um, the accomplishment is, is not as shareable. Exactly. Yeah, mm. I think that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kimberly Coburn. It's been fabulous having this conversation, which felt actually like a communal kind of participation over, over Zoom to me. I appreciate very much your time and the care you took to inform me about all of these things. Is there some way people could get in touch with you if they want to? Absolutely. If you just Google my name, Kimberly Coburn, and Biosite, B-I-O-S-I-T-E, that will bring both the writing that I've done recently and also my contact information. They can also look at the homesteadatl.com. I still receive those emails, even though we no longer have programming. I still can be reached through, through that. Great. Well, thank you very much, Kimberly Coburn. And I look forward to continuing to be in touch with you. I hope so. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye then. Bye. You heard Kimberly Coburn talking about fermentation and the end of our world as we've known it. You can hear Tidings right here at this time on the second Wednesday of the month or any time at all as podcasts on hazelcon.com. To support my programs, Tidings and North Fork Works, and all the wonderful WPKN interview programs, please make a donation at wpkn.org. Thank you. I'm Hazel Kahn. <music>